Good afternoon, great to see you here at the EU's public meeting for this week. We'll be continuing today to look at John's Gospel, John chapter 17 we're looking at today. So if you've got a Bible with you, it'd be good to take that out and open it up to John 17. And you've got an outline there, fairly bereft of details, but that's just so you can be creative in your note-taking. We'll be having a little break from John's Gospel after today. We're going to be coming back to it in week 11, and we'll finish off uh, week 11, 12 and 13, we'll finish off the rest of John's Gospel. But today, John 17. Well, you know, it's a privilege when you get to hear other people pray. Now, there's a danger also when you listen to other people pray. There's a danger that you could start focusing on the content of their prayer in such a way that you start slipping into analysis of their prayer rather than joining with them in, say, adoration of the God to whom we're praying. Or worse still, you can actually start focusing on the person who's doing the praying. Ah, listen to that interesting lilt in their voice when they say, Hallelujah! Or, look at the... ...and giving thanks before sharing an evening meal together. And every now and then one of them will invariably say, Ah, so-and-so had their eyes open. And then the retort is, oh, but then you must have had your eyes open to see that. And it degenerates into the stance that people have while they pray. So there's a danger in focusing too much on either the content or the person. But nevertheless, it is a privilege to hear people pray. A few years ago, I was at an EU event at which a well-known international evangelical author and speaker... Uh, was addressing the students. And he was speaking, I think, on the state of global Christianity or global evangelicalism or something. I can't actually remember what the precise topic was, let alone anything of actually what he said in the hour and a half or whatever he spoke for. I can't remember a thing about it except this. I can remember when he closed in prayer. When he closed in prayer. I can remember it. I just remember the sense... As this man led us in prayer together, just a real sense of hearing this man speak to his heavenly father. Just had a real sense of, it was a personal communication. It was intimate. It was real. And that left a profound impact on me. I'm still talking about it today. It uh, really affected my understanding of what prayer is about. I can remember the room we were in. I can remember where he was standing. I can remember where I was seated. It is a memorable privilege to hear people pray. And maybe in some small way, my experience that day was something like that which was experienced by John the Apostle when on the night before Jesus died, Jesus prayed to his heavenly Father in the presence of his disciples. And through John's written testimony about that prayer, which we have right in front of us in John chapter 17, we get to share in this enormous privilege of listening as Jesus prays to his heavenly Father. And when we listen in to Jesus' prayer here, amongst many things that we learn about Jesus and about his relationship with his Father in heaven, astoundingly, 
we hear that if you're a Christian person, a follower of the Lord Jesus, that Jesus prayed for you that night before he died. He was praying for you. Well, let's set a little bit of the context here. As I said, it's Jesus' last night before his execution. Already we know that Judas has gone to collect the troops that will arrest Jesus in what's probably just a matter of hours. Jesus has spent the memorable night with his remaining disciples. He shared a meal with them. This is from chapter 13. He's washed their feet. He's talked to them about serving one another, about his betrayal, about his imminent departure to death, uh, his return to his heavenly father. He's talked about the opposition and the persecution that they will face as his disciples once he's gone. And he shared with them his troubled heart at this ordeal he must face. Now that all sounds a bit negative, but actually Jesus' message to the disciples this night has not really been negative. He's told them lots of positive truths, things that are going to comfort and prepare them for his absence. So a bit of a list here. He's told them he's going to prepare a place for them in his father's house and that one day he'll return to collect them and take them to be with him in the father's presence. He's told them that while they're going to mourn when he's killed, they will shortly see him again and they will have at that moment irremovable joy, joy that won't leave them. He's told them also that they should be glad that he's going because he's going to the Father. He's told them that actually it's to their advantage that he's going because if he goes, he can ask the Father to send the Spirit, the Spirit who will be with them, who will be in them, who will be reminding them of all the things that Jesus has taught, who will work through their testimony to convict the world that it's got Jesus wrong. And so he's encouraged them to remain in him, to be faithful, to be fruitful in obedience, especially in the matter of loving one another. Then he says, you'll remain in the Father and in the Son's love. Well, that is, Jesus is speaking many words of comforting preparation to his disciples. So if you just want to get a sense of it, look right at the end of chapter 16, just before we launch into chapter 17. The very last verse of chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus sort of sums together his words of comfort and preparation to his disciples on this night. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So now Jesus turns to prayer. And the two big themes of his prayer are glory and truth. Glory and truth. So as we move through chapter 17, you'll see how glory and truth both feature in Jesus' prayer. So first of all, first point you can jot down, Jesus prays for glory. Jesus prays for glory, verses 1 to 5. Now the request here that Jesus makes to his heavenly Father is in verses 1 and 5, and the middle bit, verses 2 to 4, give the grounds or the basis for his request. So let's look first at his request, verses 1 and 5. Verse 1 there, what does he say? He prays, Father, the time has come, glorify your Son. Or look down to verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me in, the presence, in, in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus is praying here for a return to his pre-incarnate glory. The glory he had as the eternal Son of God. 
the Word, who was with God, who was God. He's not praying that he might leave his body behind and return to a pre-incarnate state. No, he's praying here that he will indeed, in his body, in his new resurrection body, be returned to the glory that he had before, before he became flesh. So if you look to 1 Corinthians 15 verse 43, you can see how Paul there talks about how the body is raised in glory. And if you think forward to the revelation that John, this same John is given of Jesus raised in glory, captured in Revelation chapter 1, you get a bit of a picture of what Jesus maybe is praying for. Let me read, it, read out to you this vision that John has given of the resurrected and glorious Jesus. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 to 16. John writes there, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands I saw one like the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man was the special title that Jesus used for himself in his earthly ministry. And he goes on, The Son of Man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining with full force. That's Jesus raised in glory. That's the glory for which Jesus is here praying. But what's the goal of his request? Have a look there in verse 1 again of chapter 17. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. That is, Jesus is not praying here an egocentric or self-focused prayer. He's saying, glorify me, yes, even through death, back to glory, so that I may glorify you. His prayer is directed to his Father. He's concerned for his Father's glory. That is, I think what Jesus is praying here is equivalent to the prayer you can read back in John chapter 12, verse 27 to 29, when Jesus realized that the hour had come for his death and glorification. John chapter 12, verse 27 to 29 there. Jesus says there, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. See, Jesus there, mindful of what glorification will entail for him, namely his own death, at the hands of a world that hates him, yet all according to his father's plan, the prayer, glorify your son, is equivalent, really, to your will be done on earth in me. Or the prayer that Jesus prays in Luke chapter 22, 41 to 44, in the Garden of Gethsemane. That is, what Jesus is saying here is, Father, bring these events that you've planned to pass, even my death, and then resurrection and exaltation, so that through my obedience and through what you are doing in me, you might bring glory to yourself. That's what he is praying for. 
What's, that's the request. What's the ground for his request? Well, the ground for his request is that seeking the Father's glory has been what Jesus has been on about since the very beginning. Look there, verses 2 to verse 4. He says there, For you, Father, granted him, that is, Jesus himself, authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus goes on here to talk about eternal life, how it's given. It's given here through knowledge of the Father and the one he sent. Now, if you've been following as we've been working through John's Gospel, you'll know that usually eternal life comes to people through believing. These things have been written, says John, such that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. Normally, eternal life comes through believing. But here, eternal life is connected to knowledge. Knowledge of the Father and the one he has sent. Is that something new? Is that something different? No, actually, belief and knowledge are paired together. They're like two sides of the one coin. You can see that in this very prayer in verse 8. If you look there in verse 8, what does Jesus pray? He says at the end of verse 8, They knew, talking about his first disciples, They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Knowledge and belief paired together. And so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that the way to eternal life, the very essence of eternal life, is this knowledge of the Father and the one he sent. And that's the very thing that Jesus came to bring, knowledge of the Father. Go back to chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God, but God, the one-of-a-kind Son, who is close to the Father's heart, he has made him known. Jesus makes the Father known. If you've seen me, says Jesus, you've seen the Father. So Jesus brings this knowledge of God, this knowledge of God that is the essence of eternal life. So what do we learn about Jesus here in this first section of the prayer? I think one of the things we learn here is that he is so totally focused, not on himself. Jesus is so totally focused on his Father. He says, yes, glorify me, but so that you might be glorified. I've come here to do your work. I've come to bring knowledge of you through people knowing me. He's so totally focused on his Father and he entrusts himself, even this night before he dies, to his Father. Glorify your Son. And I think there's a useful sort of just a side to note here as we look at this section of the prayer that it challenges a little bit the way we think about eternal life. That as we normally think about eternal life as unending life, life that goes on for eternity. And that's true. Eternal life does go on for eternity. We know from the scriptures that we are raised immortal. We are raised such that death will not touch us anymore. That death itself is defeated in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So yes, eternal life is unending life. But that's not the big deal really about it. That it's just unending. I mean people are pretty hung up on unending sort of life. I heard on the radio just this week of a guy who 
because of his belief in cryogenics, the ability to freeze a body and then bring it back to life at some future date, he's left in his will all his money to himself. Because one day he'll be able to come back and keep it all. Is the point of living forever just so that you can live for yourself forever? Is that the point, just live forever? No, the heart of eternal life is knowing God, being in a relationship with God. Uh, let me give you an illustration. My guess is because you're here at uni, you know lots of stuff. Probably all very helpful stuff about little bits of cells and bricks and things, right? You learn lots of stuff about things, is my guess. Um, I went to uni too, I, I know a little bit of stuff. Um, in fact, I'll share with you one of the pieces of stuff that I know about. I know what to do if I'm faced with a wild elephant. Um, I didn't actually use that, learn that as part of my uni degree, you might be surprised, but I learned it when my wife and I were working as short-term missionaries in India. We were working in a school, and as you do when you're in a school, you take children on excursions. Uh, I was taking some children on an overnight excursion, a bit of a trek, and uh, as preparation for that, they had to teach us some stuff. And if you're taking kids on a trek in Australia, you learn how to make a fire safely or what to do if someone breaks a leg. In India, they teach you what to do if you meet a wild elephant, what you do if you meet a wild tiger. This was part of the preparation session. You want to know what you do if you meet a wild elephant? Have I told you before? No. What you do is you take off your backpack and you throw it down vigorously in front of you and then you run downhill. There you go. <laughs> File that away, it may be useful. Um, I can tell you why. That is because the hope is that the elephant will seek to kill the backpack before it seeks to kill you. So you throw it down and hopefully it will trample the backpack to death first. And then you run downhill because elephants, frankly, can run faster than you on the flat and uphill. They're slowest downhill. So that's your best bet. So that's what to do. If you want to know what to do in face with a wild tiger, Come and speak to me at afternoon tea. <laughs> that is, we all know stuff. But when we're told here that eternal life is about knowing God, it's a different sort of knowledge to just knowing stuff, like what to do if you're faced with a wild elephant. Knowing God is a relational sort of knowing. It's like if I said to you, I know my wife and my wife knows me. It's not just that we read a book about each other. And I can tell you her favourite colour, her favourite foods. No, no, it's about that we're in a relationship and we know each other relationally. It's personal. And what this is saying here is that the essence of eternal life isn't, it isn't so much its extent that it's for eternity, but that its quality, its essential quality, is that you are in a knowing relationship with God through his son Jesus. That God knows you and you know him. He's your heavenly father. That's the essence of eternal life. And because that is the very essence of eternal life, that eternal life starts today. You're already in it. If you put your faith, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are already in that knowing relationship. Yes, you will know him more fully, even as you are fully known now, but but you are already in that eternal life. Well, let's move on to the uh, second section of the prayer. Jesus prays here 
for his eyewitnesses. Jesus prays for his eyewitnesses, verses 6 to 19. Again, there's a bit of a, a ground or a basis for the request that Jesus makes, and you could summarise the basis for the request he makes here for these disciples under three words, sort of what, who and where. This is the basis for his request for his disciples here. What, who and where. What, what has Jesus done and what have they done? Well, look there in verse 6. Jesus says, I have revealed you, that is his father, to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. In that verse, what did Jesus do? What's he done? He's revealed the father. Literally, he's made the father's name known. That's what your footnote probably tells you there. He's made the Father's name known to them. And what have they done? They've obeyed the word. They've responded with faith obedience to what's been revealed. That's the first plank, if you like, of the basis of his request. I've revealed your name to them. They've believed it. Next, who? Who are these people in that same verse? They're the ones the Father has chosen out of the world and given them to Jesus to be his disciples, to be those who've trusted in him to be the recipients, if you like, of eternal life. That's who they are. And then the where, where's Jesus going and where are they? Well, Jesus says there in verse 11, the beginning of verse 11, he says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. That is the third plank in the basis of the request he'll make here is that he's about to leave and go to the Father, but they're staying in the world. That's the scenario, that's the situation that Jesus acknowledges. I've revealed you to them and they've believed it. You chose them out of the world and gave them to me. And now I'm leaving and they're staying in this world that hates them because it hates me. So what will he pray for this first group of disciples? Well, the request is there in uh, verse, starts in verse 11, the second half of verse 11. I guess if you want to summarise the request, it goes like this. I think the way to summarise it is that he prays that they might be kept in the truth of God amidst and for the world. Kept in the truth of God amidst and for the world. Now let me try to unpack that and see how that tries to summarise what Jesus prays here for the disciples from verses 11 through to verse 17. First of all, look there in verse 11. The second half of verse 11. Jesus starts his request by saying, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Literally it's there, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name you gave me. Keep them in your name. That's the literal sort of rendition. And in verse 6 we already saw that Jesus has described his ministry as revealing the Father's name to them. And he'll say that again in verse 26. I've made your name known to them. And what does it mean to make someone's name known to them? It doesn't mean that Jesus just walked around Palestine going, Yahweh, 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 just making God's name known to people. That's not what he's talking about. To make one's name known to someone means to share with them the person's character. Now, these days, we've lost that connection between name and character. For instance, I've done a little bit of research. Uh, My name, Rowan, means little red one. 
I only wish I had hair such that it could be red. Um, though interesting, there is a rowan tree which has little red berries. Probably explains why it's called the rowan tree. Um, I've also looked up Ryan. Uh, interesting, the A-N, the A-N ending means little. Hence, I'm little red one. Ryan is little king. That's not too bad. That's not too bad. Yeah, your parents, little king. That's nice. Thank you, mum and dad. Um, <laughs> interesting, we've lost the connection, though, between name and character. I mean, we, it's a point of fun for us. But in many indigenous cultures, you would be given a name at different times in your life that reflects your character. Your name might even change, develop, as people understand your character better. So when you reveal someone's name, that means that you've, you've grasped, you're proclaiming some aspect of their character. And in the Old Testament, that's certainly true with respect to God. When Moses, in Exodus 33, asked for a revelation of God's glory, this is what the Lord God says to him, Exodus 33. The Lord says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That is, the proclamation of God's name is linked to a revelation of his character. So Jesus, when he makes known the Father's name, has been revealing God's character. He's been speaking God's truth about himself. And verse, in verse 12, Jesus says that while he's been with his disciples, he's kept them in this name. He's protected them, kept them in this name. But now he's leaving. So what he prays in verse 11 there is that the Father will keep them in the Father's own name, this name that he'd given to Jesus to reveal. What does that mean? I think what it means is Jesus is praying that the Father will keep these first eyewitnesses going in obedience to what's been revealed. They will keep on being Jesus' followers. They will obey the revelation that's come to them through Jesus Christ. In particular, he's asking this because the disciples are going to be left in this world that hates them and Jesus himself is departing. So this is Jesus' prayer then that the Father will keep these first eyewitnesses in his name. But it's not just keep them safe from the attacks of the world that hates them or protect them just from the evil one who will be out to sort of move them away from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's more than that too. Actually, he prays his prayer for the sake of this world that will hate them. Let me show you what I mean. Have a look at verses 17 to 19 there. Jesus continues in this prayer. For these first disciples, he says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now to sanctify just means to make holy or to set apart. And Jesus' request of his Father here is that these first disciples might be sanctified, might be set apart in the truth. I think if you read in the NIV there, it's been a bit over-eager in its translation when it says, by the truth. I think it's probably better just rendered in the truth. That is, what Jesus is asking for here is, he's asking for a similar thing to what we just saw about keeping them in the Father's name. He's asking here that they be set apart from the world by their allegiance and their obedience to the truth so that they might continue Jesus' mission. So they might continue to be lights in a dark world. 
See, it's hard for them to go into the world and proclaim the truth about Jesus if, frankly, their lives are no different to everybody else. If they're not living an obedient, fruit-bearing life, they're not really going to be able to continue Jesus' mission. So he says to his heavenly Father, Father, sanctify them, set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. So that they might be able to go out and continue this mission on which you've sent me and now I've sent them. Well, that's Jesus' prayer for his first group of disciples. These ones chosen by him to testify about him to all the world. And it's a prayer that the Father would would keep them in faithful obedience to the truth. And interestingly, this is a prayer that we can know has been answered. At least in part. I mean, the full story of how the Father graciously answered this prayer of Jesus will have to wait till, I guess, we're standing next to those first disciples in glory. Then we can find out the whole story. But when we look at the rest of the New Testament, we can see how Jesus' Father did indeed keep this first group of honestly somewhat you know, less than impressive bunch of disciples. He kept them in the truth. He kept them in his name, this name given to Jesus, such that despite the persecution that the world threw at them, despite even their death, they remained faithful and they proclaimed the word. And I guess we're enjoying the fruits of that by reading John's own testimony here today. In a way, we're living in the answer to that prayer that Jesus prayed as we read John's written testimony preserved here for us. Well, that's uh, the second section of the prayer. Let's move on to the third section, where Jesus prays for us and millions of others. Jesus prays for us and millions of others. This is verse 20 to 23. Let's read this section of the prayer together. Jesus continues, My prayer is not for them alone, that is the first disciples alone, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. So Jesus now prays for those who would believe in him through this message of those first chosen eyewitnesses. That is, he's praying for you and me as we read this testimony about John. And what does he pray for us? Well, again, it's a prayer about truth. It's a prayer about truth. There's lots of connections here, significant connections between what Jesus prays for us here and what he prayed for those first eyewitnesses. Have a look with me. What's Jesus' prayer for us in verse 21? That all of them may be one. But what was part of Jesus' prayer for those first disciples? Look back at verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name that you've given me so that they may be one as we are one. It's the same goal. The same goal of Jesus' prayer, oneness, unity. Jesus, I think, here is widening the scope of his intercession, if you like. He's still praying, though, for the same thing. He first of all prays for those first witnesses that they be one. 
And then he prays for everyone who'd believe in the message through them, that they'd be one, all one together. What does this unity look like, this oneness? What shape does it take? Well, if you were there at annual conference, I mentioned that this is one of those passages that they're often used to advocate for Christians doing stuff together. Jesus prays that we'd all be one, you know, we should put aside our theological differences and join together. It's the pin-up passage, if you like, for ecumenicalism. Now, maybe in some form, that might be some sort of implication of this passage, but different denominations or different Christian groups on campus is not what Jesus is talking about here. Look again there in verse 21. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Or a bit further down, verse 22 and 23. That they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. So let me draw a picture for you of what this sort of looks like. Isn't that what verse 21 says? As I am in you and you are in me, may they be in us. That's this oneness he's talking about. It's not a oneness primarily with one another, that that's an implication. The oneness is with them, isn't it? With father and son. And then he says in verse 22 and 23, you in me and I in them. And that sort of completes the picture. That's the shape of the oneness, I think, here in this passage. Well, then how are we to be one with Jesus and his Father? Well, there's two ways it's expressed here. First, in our response to Jesus' glory. Look at verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I've given them so that they may be one. Now, remember, Jesus bore the Father's glory. That was chapter 1, verse 14. So John could say, we've seen his glory, the glory of God's one-of-a-kind Son. And Jesus has shared that glory, that revelation of his glory, with the first eyewitnesses, and through their testimony, he shared it with you and me. You haven't seen Jesus' glory with your eyes, but you've read about it, and you've heard about it, as we proclaim the apostles' testimony. So yes, you have, Jesus has shared the, his glory with you. You've been able to behold it. And how do we respond to that revelation of glory? Well, we respond like those first disciples with faith, with belief, with obedience, with love. And that's how we're one with Jesus and his Father, through this response of faith and love and obedience. So Jesus' prayer here isn't that we'd set aside our theological differences and just be one big happy family. His prayer is that we'd all respond with obedience to the truth that he's revealed. And he's praying the same thing for us today that he prayed for his first disciples, that we'd be united to him and his Father through faith and obedience. The second aspect to our unity with Jesus and his Father is there in verse 23. He says that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them even as you love me. That is, through our response of faith and love and obedience, we're caught up into the Father's love for his son Jesus. 
I said it at Ancon, it's worth saying again, how much do you think God loves you? The answer from that verse is that he loves you as much as he loves his son Jesus. That's the astonishing truth of the Trinity, that through faith and in the love of God, we're caught up into oneness with him and in him. But there's something else to notice here about Jesus' prayer for us. Remember that Jesus' prayer for those first disciples was with a was for the sake of the world, so that they might be sanctified in the truth, so that they could carry on the mission? Well, that's, that missionary goal is there when Jesus prays for you and me too. Have a look at verse 21 there. He prays this for us, verse 21, that the world may believe that you've sent me. Or again in verse 23, this time using knowledge instead of belief, so that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. That is, as the world sees our united response of faith and obedience and love, it is convinced of the truth of Jesus. That Jesus must be who he really claims to be. He really is the Christ, the Son of God. And the world can come to that conclusion when it sees our oneness, our faith, our obedience to Jesus. Have you heard stories where people have come to faith, have been convinced that Jesus must be who he says he is because they've experienced the obedience or love of Christian people? They might have heard the Christian message many, many times, but it's when that Christian person stood by them when everyone else deserted them and showed them real, genuine love. That's that's the thing that Jesus is praying for here. That as we're united in a response of faith and love and obedience to God, that the world might know that Jesus really is from God. A living testimony, not just with our words, but with our lives. That's what Jesus is praying for here. And if that's Jesus' prayer for us, then I think it ought to be our prayer for us as well. It's a prayer we ought to pray also with great confidence since Jesus has reassured his disciples earlier in the evening in chapters 13 through 16 that if they ask for anything in his name, it'll be given to them. He didn't tell them once, not twice, not even three times, four times in one evening. If you ask anything in my father's name, sorry, anything in my name, my father will do it. So I think if we pray the same prayer that Jesus prayed, we should have a lot of confidence that that's going to be answered. So we should keep praying that through our faith and our oneness of love and obedience, the world out there might be convinced of the truth about Jesus. Not just know that we're Christians by our love, but actually be convinced of the truth of the Lord Jesus. Because look how much those Christians love each other. Something's actually going on there. So I think we, should, we ought to pray for that. Well, finally, let's wrap up with the very last section of Jesus' prayer. Jesus prays for all his disciples, verses 24 to 26. Jesus prays for all his disciples. In this last section of the prayer, Jesus now prays for all of his disciples and he prays for their ultimate future and for their present. And again, it's all tied up with Jesus himself and the themes again are glory and truth. So first of all, he prays for our ultimate future. Listen to what he prays in verse 24. Father, I desire that those also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, 
which you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. That is, on that night before he died, Jesus is there praying that you and I would one day be united with him in the presence of his Father and that yet with your own resurrected eyes, you will behold his glory. That's what he's praying for. I don't know if you've ever been to a school reunion. Maybe not yet. I tell you what, when you start going to school reunions after what, 10 years? 15 years? 20 years? It's not always so glorious. The reunions are not very glorious occasions. The faces sag. The paunches grow. The clothes are looking more and more out of date. It's just, you know, it's not a glorious reunion. What Jesus prays for here, friends, is a glorious reunion that we will be reunited with him and see him in all his glory. He prayed for it. That's our future if we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he also prays uh, about his involvement in our present. And what you read there is that in verses 25 and 26, he is going to continue, he says there, to make himself known to us. While we wait for that ultimate future, Jesus keeps making himself known to us. How does he do that? He does it through this ongoing testimony of the apostles. As we read the word, Jesus keeps making himself known to us through the spirit in the word. Well, uh, it's a privilege to hear people pray. It's a privilege to be able to listen to what Jesus prayed that night. But I tell you what, it's even more of a privilege to have him pray for us. So why don't we now pray ourselves and ask that the Father might fulfil all those promises made through the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have indeed glorified the Lord Jesus at your right hand. We thank you for the wonderful hope you hold out for us through faith and obedience that we might behold his glory when we are raised with him. Heavenly Father, we pray that you might speed that day. And Father, in the meantime, we pray that you would fulfil this prayer of your Son on our behalf, that he might continue to make himself known to us through the testimony of these eyewitnesses in the power of your Spirit, so that we might live lives of obedience and faith and love and hope. And we ask it in his name for your glory, Lord. Amen.